industry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine, and I'm joined today by Matt Handrahan, Brendan Sinclair, and Hayden Taylor. We are here, as always, to discuss the latest games industry news and headlines, starting with GameStop, uh, which this last week laid off 120 of its employees across multiple offices, uh, 14% of its total workforce. Seven of those employees were laid off from the company's subsidiary publication, Game Informer, um, that brought the magazine staff down from 19 people to 12. Um, It's also worth noting that this brings the total layoffs at GameStop in the month of August alone to 170 people, so it's not been a great month there. Um, I mean, first off, best wishes to those affected. Like, God, that's awful. Um, my impression from social media and talking to friends is that this was extremely sudden. And I, th- I mean, I think the writing on for GameStop as a whole has been on the wall for a while. But I, I honestly did not expect them to just gut one of their more successful lines of business. Just kind of seeming, it's not really out of the blue, but kind of out of the blue. Yeah, I think, think the surprise, well, at least, at least from distance, because obviously we don't really have access to Game Informer in Europe uh, as a whole. But was just why. Why cut game? Why why cut game informer? Because you would assume that uh, it would be successful in and of itself. Though maybe maybe you or Brendan have have a clearer idea of whether the actual brand is is a profitable one. Yeah. So game informer is, uh, I think, kind of the the last major uh, print brand in in the United States and and Canada. Anyway, as far yeah. as games journalism goes, like it, it used to be, you know, you had GamePro and Electronic Gaming Monthly and and all all that. I guess yeah. there's still PC, there's still PC Gamer and a couple others that you can kind of get on the shelves at sometimes like grocery stores or like bookstores or whatever will have them. But the thing about Game Informer is when you go to GameStop, you likely sign up for their Power Up Rewards program, and when you sign up for that, you just automatically get the the magazine sent to you once a month so it's if if you would all buy games at a major retailer in the united states then you have you get games forgive my ignorance forgive my ignorance like game informer is like wholly owned by gamestop as a brand yep okay continue sorry uh and the thing was it's been a while since i frequented game gamestop enough to do this but it was like 10 or 15 dollars for an annual membership and that includes the print subscription and like a 10 percent discount on used games so if you were if you were buying a handful of used games uh every month or so then it, it would pay for itself you know without without taking too much time to do that. And it, it, so it was sort of like a no-brainer. Like, yeah, sure, I shop here. Let's do this. And so it had, it always had the most ridiculous paid subscription numbers as a result. Um, even, even now, the last time that they reported at the end of the year, it was like 6.6 million people between like four and change in print and two plus digital only. And that is just... That's a massive number of people. Like Game GameStop was saying, that is the fifth largest consumer publication in the United States with, with that amount. And it had a staff on its on its website. It had a staff of nineteen people. And when you're when you're bringing in, you know, six point six million paid subscriptions, and you've got a staff of just nineteen people, like. I know there are costs associated with it and the, you know, the $15 or whatever that people were paying a year, uh, 
doesn't doesn't exactly like cover the cost of printing it and sending it out to everyone and then paying the staff on top of that necessarily but that's still like such a tiny fraction of the money that you're bringing in is is going to the staff that it just it's it struck me as um kind of kind of depressing that GameStop is in such dire straits that they looked at Game Informer with its massive circulation and the kind of the kind of print magazine that's still around and can still command really big exclusive stories and game reveals. Maybe not as much in the last couple of years, I don't think, but long after that became a thing that print just didn't really specialize in, Game Informer was doing that. Like, like that's, that's a brand that has value. And they are cutting seven, I think, of those 19 staff. So you know, more than a third of the staff is, is gone. And that's, I'm sure they're going to get by. They're still going to, you know, publish on time and seem to fill the magazine with stuff. But like that, you notice that the quality of, of the content, if you're paying attention, the quality of the content is, is going to, to dip necessarily just when you try and ask people to make up that extra legwork. And yeah, well, it, it, it's, a, it's an odd one for me because I did used to make magazines for a living and we did it with, I think we had five editorial stuff for a 180-page magazine every month, which is, and it was a lot of work um, and there was no way of, you kind of, under those conditions, you sort of have to decide which parts of the magazine are going to be good and which can be not quite as good. Um, and I think that's kind of probably where Game Informer is going to end up being as a result of this, this sort of fairly st- steep and um, stiff cut to their resources. That's the question. Is it, um, of the seven people who were cut, is that all editorial staff or does that include like design staff and sub-editors and ad sales? I'm pretty sure it was all editorial. Um, managing editor, their their main news editor is gone. Um, a senior associate editor, an associate editor. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were all editorial. It was, it was kind of up and down the chain. I think it, uh, not the editor-in-chief, obviously, but it was spread throughout the ranks. And, I mean, obviously that this is, in a, you know, inextricably tied to GameStop's just colossal distress in the last uh year year or so and it's um you know it's it's stock price cratered uh a couple months ago when they said they weren't going to be giving out uh shareholder dividends anymore and i think last time i looked this week it was under four dollars a share and i think uh, that's down from like the high teens in the last year or so so even even when it was clear that gamestop was sort of an antiquated business model that needed to change because digital distribution was making its its primary business irrelevant in the you know coming years um even when it was clear like it was still trading at $15 or more uh for for the the shares and just it fell off a cliff once they took that dividend away and they're scrambling now and panicking and it I'm just surprised because Game Informer is like maybe the strongest brand that they have. And it feels like if you're going to cut and and seven people at that at that magazine is is what saving half a million a year, maybe less. 
Probably less, I guess, because I, I don't, you know, I, I'm working with an average of what, 70,000 a year salary for people that are largely living in Minnesota in and working in games journalism. That seems sort of like a generous figure to me. Um, yeah, so like that's a that's a shipment of Funko Pops. And that's that's not going to save the company. You're right, Brendan, but I do think like a an editorial staff of 19, when you said the staff was 19, I thought that included like ad sales and subs and, you know, marketing and all that. But like an editorial team of 19 in a print magazine in 2019 is like that is a big staff like there are not many publications around these days print publications that have editorial teams anywhere near that size i mean matt you said you did a magazine on like what five 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 editorial staff yeah and it was uh you know and there's a magazine called game CM, which was considered pretty good I, you can make a good magazine with, with fewer than 19 staff you know you i think that's, can. that's you know part like, of it my, my my previous time in sort of regional journalism, we had an editorial staff of about sort of six or seven, um, and then we had sub editors as well. And that that was that was sort of we were lucky to have that. And when when it got acquired by a, a news conglomerate, all the sub editors have since gone, and there's now a sort of editorial staff of about four, maybe five, um, and they stripped down a lot of sort of the infrastructure around it. So. Like obviously, it's very tragic these people lost their jobs, but it's it's almost kind of crazy. I think that there were nineteen editorial staff on a print publication at this kind of give given where print media is these days, and given the the slow and painful decline it's gone through, and especially when you consider that their monetization model is is giving it out on a very 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 cheap subscription of fifteen dollars a year. Well, it is the same. It is the same staff as the website. And the website has video and news and reviews, previews, all, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and and I wanted to throw in there that two of the people, like the seven people who were laid off, were all editorial. And and I know this isn't a huge numerical difference, but two of the people in that nineteen that we're talking about who are still there are both video video people. Um, so that we're we're counting that as well. I think a game form is in a weird position, right? Because you know when you talk about this sort of paid subscription number. <clears throat> that pay, I mean, it it's kind of true, but it's kind of not, right? Like the people that are subscribed to Game Inform are also subscribed to other things too. So it's kind of like this sort of like bifurcated subscription, which is for some things that is for Game Informer, but it's also doing other things. And some people maybe do it more for Game Informer. Some people maybe do it more for other other reasons. But but so I think when it comes to GameStop thinking, okay, where do we cut costs? They can look at Game Informer and look at this, you know, this paid subscription number and kind of reason cuts based on the idea that, well, we don't know if all 6.6 million of those people are absolutely going to notice a, a difference in quality of content, right? Like that maybe they can still rely on those people to pay up next year. And so they're kind of in this odd position where, you know, because outside of the US, perceptual Game Informer has always been like this. Like the strongest brand in in games press, but it does have this kind of inbuilt advantage, um, which comes with being attached to this this service that GameStop has. And Absolutely. Now, I, I think I think if, if GameStop managed to arrive at a place where they said, "Well, we can cut this," and I agree with you, like it's not a cut that's going to save the company, but it may have been based on that same kind of logic, right? Where we've got. Is this going to affect the number of people that subscribe to this service if Game Informer has a depleted team? Obviously, someone reasoned that out to being yes. 
Um, so that's what happened. I also kind of want to add that it seems maybe like they're going to do something different with the subscription thing going forward. Um, I, I was I was sitting here trying to find the tweet, and I can't find the tweet. Um, but somebody screenshotted a few days ago um, an email that they received because they're a Power Up Rewards member um, saying that... So originally the thing was if you're a Power Up Rewards member, if you're paying this whatever, $15, whatever it is, um, you also get a 10% uh, like I think 10% extra trade-in credit on used games and then 10% off used games if you're buying them. I think that's correct. Um, but it seems like from the email they're doing away with that entirely and they're replacing it with like like a five or ten dollar like gift certificate basically every month. So they're they're getting rid of one of the other really big draws to that program and changing it to something else. So it seems maybe I mean I get this is like floaty logic based on a tweet I remember reading of an email, but it seems like there's a possibility they're looking at this program that includes, you know, the game informer subscription and all these other things and they're saying this is no longer profitable for us. We need to do something. This is the thing that people like <laughs> about games. This yeah, is right? the thing. I mean, people bitch constantly about the fact that, like, like the used games there are not really that much cheaper. And, I mean, I, I too, go to, an, like, a local used game store to get my used games or to trade in used games if I'm going to do that because GameStop's pricings on those have been terrible for years. But it's still, I mean, GameStop is still the store for video games if I that's where my mind immediately jumps. And as a result, Game Informer is kind of automatically where my mind immediately jumps when I think of gaming magazines. It's a strong brand. And I, I don't know what is going to happen to it in the future, but I'm kind of hoping that if they decide they're just going to get rid of the brand entirely, maybe I hope that somebody who understands its value picks it up. Yeah, that's always a tricky proposition. But I think the most likely thing from here probably is the game informer. I mean, based on, you know, going back to what Hayden was saying, that the team as well is not as large as what Game Informer is used to, but there could be an element of like Game Informer having kind of what is a fairly like a legacy sort of size of print journalist team, right? That the things have changed and that the and, and inevitably, I, I I don't know anyone who works in, in the games media or any kind of media that hasn't been, you know, hasn't had to face up to job, job cuts at some point, that, that they have been cushioned from that to a certain degree. But I don't see any reason why Game Informer couldn't continue from here with the staff that it has. Um, it may, but as Brendan says, and this is important, people do notice it, the quality of what they put out there could change, the frequency of what they're putting out there could change. And then that could affect the, the very, very... Um, strong positive relationship it has with the industry because you know if, if anyone's going to get a big exclusive cover it's always game informer right but it is a valuable it's a valuable property it's a it's an appealing brand not just to consumers of games but also to the games industry itself and i, I don't think there's you know gamestop can, can say that about many parts of its business anymore i have seen without naming names i'll say that i have seen other major brands in the gaming press that at one point had uh comparable editorial staffs and i have seen them sort of had the corners cut time and again over years and i think those brands are considerably worse for it uh i think that there was uh value and meaning in those brands that i don't see in them any longer and it's, it feels like a mismanagement of an asset to me. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely part of like the slow death of print journalism or print media. And like it's 
you know, G Game Informer will be worse off for it. Like, there's no doubt. Like, having less people is, it's, they're just not going to be able to produce what they want to do and the scale and quality that they want to do it. But at the same time, like, I still think it's a very, very big editorial staff for 2019 when you just consider, like, how online and print media has changed so much in just the last few years like we we don't make money online in the same way that we used to like ad blockers have completely changed how revenue streams work like if you look at if you look at any like online publication whether that's in games or whether that's you know like mainstream media like the guardian um they all have like affiliate marketing programs they all do buyers guides and you know you click through to amazon you buy a thing and they get like 15 pence for that like sentient fridge that you bought like it's bridges are getting too smart that's the point but but the 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 point stands right you know people like they go they they what's the hot fridge in in black friday they buy the fridge the guardian gets 15 pence but like nine hundred thousand people buy it or whatever like it affiliate marketing is kind of it's how online media companies stay afloat these days um you see it across like and i i don't know if game informer does that um and like guides content as well and i don't know if game informer does guides content i don't know if it does affiliate marketing and if it's not that's <laughs> it's it's so it's game informer's it's, affiliate marketing is gamestop well yeah but like, that's that's but, always but, been but can, but can but do they do they do a buyer's guides for you know black friday because that's there's a lot of money in doing buyer's guides for black friday like we do it at the gamer network the the daily express does it the guardian does it tech insider does it like it is it is how these things are done and i don't know if game informer is keeping up in that way because it might be holding on to its kind of print roots and maybe that's it like maybe they're seeing because get game GameStop as a company is looking to try and pivot into new areas with esports and things like that. So maybe they're seeing it as like we don't need we don't need 19 people on the editorial staff. We need 12 people on the editorial staff and a bunch of guides writers now. Like it, the nature of online, the nature of kind of surviving in the online ecosystem has just changed so drastically over just like the last like two or three years. Yeah, I'll throw something. I throw, throw something else on top of that because it's sort of linked. Um, you know, this it, the fact that it is linked to GameStop has been had been a benefit to GameFormer for so long. Right? You know, we again going back to this six point six million subscriber figure, like that is sort of inflated to a certain degree because of the nature of the way it's all tied up with other things. Like it's not that's not six point six million people going to a newsstand and buying a copy of GameFormer every month. That's not what was happening. And so this is tied to that. There's another website I used to love called Grantland, which was set up under ESPN yeah. by Michael Simmons. Now that got shut down because ESPN decided this is not something we want to do anymore. Like this isn't, and the reason why, and Bill Simmons has talked about this since it was, a, it was an excellent website, brilliant stuff. One of the best websites I think that's ever existed on the internet. Bill Simmons has said, if it was an in independent business, it would have continued to operate. Like it was making money, but it just wasn't making enough money for ESPN's taste. And now it's gone. And this is part and parcel of being owned by a company with shareholders and, frankly, whose business is extremely different to the one that you're operating in. Um, and as Hayden's pointing out, like when you're trying to pivot 
potentially even further away from from the, the your traditional business, which is what game performance linked to. I mean, if if, uh, if if game sports looking at becoming a sort of like an esports and Funko Pop Emporium, then it's even got less to do with with, with GI than uh, game performance. Sorry, because we're GI, the, the, the only one and the best <laughs> ever before. And, yeah, and it's tough. Sometimes you get caught in the crosshairs of this kind of thing. And and I, I think it's with this issue, it's difficult because as journalists, you know, we don't want to see any of our our kind of peers. Lose, lose a job but I do think it's possible to look at this and go you can go and see where this one how this one came to pass yeah I'm looking at their homepage right now I ran a search for Black Friday and I my, I, I read Game Informer fairly regularly like I I I enjoy the magazine I get it every month and I I'm going through all this and I you know, it, it, it's a dang shame, isn't it? Because like, like this, the, yeah, there's, there's ads here and there, but the, it's not a super ad heavy website. Like it's fairly clean. Most of these things are like reviews or, um, you know, features. Um, it's, it's, it's not very salesy. I'm not opening their website and getting bombarded with a bunch of things telling me what the best technological fridge is or whatever. Like it's, it's really, it's, it's about games. It's, it's all stuff that I'm like interested in reading and, I kind of like what Matt, Matt and Brendan and Hayden are all saying, like th- that could potentially change if GameStop has decided that they want to go, that they want to use leverage this to be more profitable in a different way. And I, I, I hate to see that go. Like so many other sites have gone that direction. Hayden's right. That is kind of the trajectory of websites in general. And I, yeah, it's, it's just a bummer to lose another one if that's if that's what they decide. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, well, it's on the way home from Gamescom, which is something we're going to touch on later. Like, and and thinking about okay, so if 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 Game Informer were purchased as it, as it stood pre layoffs by like an independent media organization, would would they be able to keep nineteen staff, uh, nineteen editorial staff? Would it be able to continue to operate? as it currently does and that is an open question right so that maybe you know it's obviously like the instinct is to say this is GameStop's mismanagement and I do kind of believe it probably is but at the same time like it it's difficult to say whether a a product like Game Informer could exist outside of GameStop anymore um, because of the ways in which the media landscape has changed as Hayden pointed out yeah, it doesn't look like it could. <laughs> Just yeah, looking at the rest of the media landscape. Also, to like Rebecca's point, I'm, I'm looking at the website now. Like, it is, it is just games. Like, there's no terribly intrusive ads. There's no autoplay video or anything like that. And it is just games. But if you look at a lot of the biggest game sites these days, like Kotaku and A, um, ING and Polygon, like they have diversified well beyond video games. You know, Kotaku, All the way to Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, like, and a, a huge, I would imagine a huge portion of Kotaku's traffic is really pumping like that Marvel train. And you see it like IGN just do sort of, I mean, they're just kind of pop culture now, generally, like they, they cover everything. But that's it, like they've had to expand because people, views are worth less money today than they were yesterday. And people about once a month will complain on Twitter or something about, oh, IGN is all, it's all entertainment. They stopped doing games or whatever. And they, you know, make a big fuss about it. But I mean, one, that's, you know, partially not true. They used to do quite, quite a few games. Um, but also, 
Yeah, because people click on it. Like y- you individually may not like it, but the fact is that people people click on these things. Pe- they, it's profitable for people to do this. And if doing things like that is what keeps your site afloat and your people employed, then that's what you got to do. Especially I guess. when people aren't willing to pay for stuff on the internet. Like the internet, u- universally, content is almost entirely free. Like there are very few websites that can get away with charging you for access. Uh, Patreon is common among like independent creators, but doesn't sort of uh, subscription models get a little bit more complicated at, at higher tier, like sort of digital subscriptions. So, and people like ad blockers because ads are annoying. So it's just kind of this this ramshackle house, like online media at the moment, that is just collapsing in on itself. And it's kind of collapsing under the weight of people's expectations and the fact that people aren't willing to really support it in the way that they that is required in order for it to succeed in the way that they want. Yeah, no, that's a big issue. And I think, you know, for a long time, Game Informer, I think, I mean, again, it's this thing where what, what probably protected them is ultimately what has brought them down, which is the affiliation with, with GameStop and, and being able to say, being the only brand left in gaming that can sell, <laughs> sell millions of copies of a magazine, but not in that kind of direct way, which would truly make them kind of independent and able to continue as they were. Well, I mean, best of luck to everyone affected. Like they're, they're brilliant people. I, I hope they find places that will use their brilliance um, for all that it's worth. Um, I'm really sorry to everybody. Um, on a very different note, um, it was a week for major platform holders to sort of blur the lines on exclusives. Uh, during a Nintendo Indie World showcase earlier this week, we saw Microsoft announce that it was publishing Ori in the Line Forest, uh, previously an Xbox and PC exclusive, on the Switch. Uh, then, uh, unrelated conversation, we had Sean Layden saying, uh, it was an interview with Bloomberg about the acquisition of Insomniac by Sony. Um, Sean Layden was saying that uh, Sony may need to lean into a wider install base, uh, implying they might bring PS4 exclusive titles to PC. And then later, this last week, uh, Sony published a third-party game, Robot Entertainment's Ready Set Heroes, on both PS4 and PC, which is not like super earth-shattering until you find out that they published the game on the Epic Game Store instead of anywhere else, and that's a first for Sony. So uh, we had our contributing editor, Rob, uh, he wrote a really solid column today about how kind of the advent of cloud streaming is driving a lot of what looks kind of like a newfound, maybe not cooperation, but at least like like looseness with this kind of like platform exclusivity idea um, between the different platform holders. So I'm curious as to what you all think about that. Well, I think that these two examples are, are kind of different in some ways. Like the, the Microsoft putting games on Switch is being in some places being talked about as roughly equivalent to Sony publishing games on PC, but actually, you know, Sony isn't publishing a game on Switch and it's not publishing a game on Xbox. It's just publishing a game on PC and Microsoft's been publishing every single one of its exclusive games on PC for years already. Um, so Microsoft's like well ahead of the curve in this one. Microsoft is well ahead. And and while, while I do kind of agree with Rob in pretty much everything he says, on this occasion, I, I do think that Sony's decision to maybe be looking at this is actually more prompted by Microsoft than it is by anything like Google. Um, Microsoft might be prompted more by Google, but I think this is, this is PlayStation seeing Xbox becoming more and more and more open and gearing up for a, for a real kind of fight in the next console generation and, and realizing that maybe it can't, can't keep it all to itself anymore. I think that's, like, that's, that's, that's the important thing here, right? Like Sony going, taking its games to PC is a very different proposition from Microsoft taking its games to PC because the Microsoft move, when they announced that, that felt very much like a sort of 
tacit acceptance that the Xbox One hadn't performed quite to the quite successfully as they wanted it to. They were really, really dragging behind Sony in terms of hardware sales, who were just running off into the distance with like a wheelbarrow full of cash. And Microsoft kind of sat there being like, nobody's really buying our Xbox, so we need to kind of innovate. We need to think about how it is we get back in the game, and they can't compete on hardware, so they they move into different avenues. And it feels, although it does feel a bit odd from Sony to because they are in this dominant position where like they don't need to do this in order to compete because there's what a hundred is it a hundred million PlayStation fours in the wild now, thereabouts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah they. <laughs> Sony don't don't need to play this game, um, but I guess there is the thing with with cloud streaming and sort of Ubisoft leaning into cloud streaming as well as a publisher and Google Stadia. It's like I I wonder how much they do feel the need to compete with it. But the next generation, I I don't think cloud streaming is going to be the next generation. Like, I think it will play a part in the next generation, but I don't think it's going to be the thing that defines it. I just don't think we're quite there yet for it to be as mass market as a console is. Like, consoles struggled enough when when they first launched, like, Xbox and the Always Online. That that was one of the things that nearly killed the Xbox launch. So it, the idea of just seven or eight... How many years is it now? Yeah, like six, six seven years later, the idea of kind of point, pinning all of our hopes on like cloud streaming and kind of online only games it just it does not feel like we're there like e- e- even here in the gamer network office which has very good wi-fi the <laughs> i can a lot of the time the wi-fi just kind of drops out and is a bit crap and the idea of trying to hook a game on that in like rural areas or military bases or just kind of countries that just don't have the infrastructure like you feel like becoming a very limiting audience so the thing is like things in the industry change really quickly like i remember when half-life 2 came out and all the gamers were upset about this requirement that you have this steam software (laughs) on your computer like like what is oh this is horrible consumers rise up (laughs) and and now it's oh is it is it 15 years later really it's about yeah yeah wow okay so maybe they don't happen as fast as i thought but still now we have like abuse campaigns because people are not on steam somehow (laughs) because we love steam so much and we need it with everything so like the what what was you know um anathema to people a few years ago with the xbox one and the always online those kind of things are not like rooted in some kind of unchanging principle they're they're often rooted just in sort of like what are people used to by now course i'm I'm not saying it's like i I think cloud gaming almost certainly will come along and be the future i just don't know if it's quite yet it's true but but we we shouldn't also um mix up like subscription catalog style services with cloud gaming because they're not the same thing um probably the more i think they will be uh, no no well no they will be eventually yeah but 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 initially i think that the most popular Popular services like like Netflix are going to be based on downloads, and they will become they will become the cloud based stuff further down the line. One of the issues with Google Stadia as it currently stands is it's not the subscription it's not a subscription service. 
uh, or rather it's not a subscription-based catalog service like Netflix. It's a subscription service, but, you know, it's not the kind of, like, here's a massive catalog of games that Xbox Game Pass is. I think what Sony is doing is an acknowledgement that in the future, at least its main competitor, Microsoft, um, is not particularly fussy about where it gets its players from anymore. Uh, what it wants is to get as many people playing its games as it possibly can, not worry too much about whether they paid $60 in a box with the Xbox symbol on it. Um, and that even though it doesn't need to compete in that way now with this current platform, I think Sony is looking ahead and realizing that the next platform may not be the same because while Microsoft's cautionary tale was the Xbox One, it got that wrong. Sony's cautionary tale was only the generation before. It was the PlayStation 3. Like the, the, the roles just reversed. So I think Sony's it's good to see that Sony might be acutely aware that, that its success now does not mean success in the future. Uh, the, the, the question I have, though, is whether, whether, whether or not we can read too much into Ready, Set, Heroes being released on the Epic Game Store because it is not Insomniac Spider-Man being released on the Epic Game Store. And I think going back to the Microsoft point, I mean, you know, it's brought some games to Switch, which again, I think it's, if Sony was saying we might publish some games on Switch, I think that would have been a bigger story anyway. But Microsoft isn't publishing Gears 5 on Switch, you know, it's publishing smaller games. And while this is all quite significant, um, I forget which member of Microsoft said it, but they kind of intimated that this is not, that we don't have many more of these planned at this point. Um, not never again. I wouldn't read, read it to mean that, but certainly, like you know, you know, no, no, no time in the near future are we going to be putting every single game that we that we put out there onto Switch. So, what I wonder is like how much these two pieces of news truly suggest about how open either of these companies are to to making all of their games available across all platforms. I do think you're probably right um, about about Sony kind of, you know, being at least a little bit wary and understanding that it's success, that success is not guaranteed next generation. Because my my wild theory, and maybe it's not so wild, I don't know, is that uh, Microsoft is, this is tying it back into cloud. And I know we haven't seen like a whole ton of details about what this xCloud thing is going to end up looking like uh, kind of when it turns into whatever Microsoft is making of it. But I think of, of anybody, uh, Microsoft is currently probably one of the best positioned to have a successful cloud gaming service next generation, um, they've they've already been putting their games on. Like like you said, they don't they don't they aren't fussy about what platforms their games end up on. Clearly, um, and they also already have their Game Pass subscription service, with which with has been, apparently been very very successful. Not just for Microsoft, but also we've heard a whole bunch of developers over the last year say that yeah, this has been great for sales, um, just because it raises the awareness of our games and you know, people end up buying them on other platforms as well. Um, and other things. And so I, I think that if, if Microsoft can come out swinging with something that combines, because that's, that's one of the big criticisms about Google Stadia, right? Like you have to pay a subscription fee. And then on top of that, you have to pay for each game individually. And that doesn't sound like a super valuable proposition to people. But I think if Microsoft can come out swinging with, with something where they say, okay, you pay more, more than Game Pass is currently, obviously, but you pay just this one subscription fee and you get cloud streaming of all these games in this library. I mean, that's that would be incredible. That would be such an incredible idea. And I think if that's if that's the decision that they go with, then yeah, I if I'm Sony and I, I don't have quite as valuable a, a cloud streaming um, offer to give people and all of my big exclusives are only on my console, I'm going to be thinking maybe I should put them somewhere else to kind of, you know, make sure that people can buy them even if they aren't necessarily on our main console. 
So I, I think it makes sense. That's a little bit speculative, but. I think this is just kind of a natural extension for Microsoft. Like years, just a couple of years into the generation when they're like, we're not reporting hardware sales anymore because we think engagement numbers are the important stuff. It felt at the time like it was just like, well, yeah, because you're getting trounced by the PS4. But uh, <laughs> when you start to see like Activision sort of doing the same thing and, and so many other publishers just saying, here's our engagement numbers and that's what we're focusing on, you really start to realize like, yeah, the, the unit sales aren't necessarily the big thing, especially for hardware. And if unit sales aren't the big thing and engagement numbers are, then putting your stuff on more platforms means more users, more engagement. So like it, Sony's move seems to be um, like Hayden was saying, like they're they're the dominant player right now, but they're sitting here trying to kind of fast follow like the Microsoft, who is a distant um, oh third place now, I guess maybe. I I don't actually well, know. Well, I, th I think it's it's difficult to kind of compare the Microsoft with and Nintendo because yeah. of the age of the platforms. I think it's tough. But regardless, Microsoft does not, you know, really have that that sort of position that that normally draws imitators. Uh, so either Sony just kind of has sort of seen where things are headed, or they've they've maybe they've actually got some sort of uh, data here on you know what Microsoft is is doing these days, and and that the the production behind uh, the momentum behind the games pass ultimate and things like that are are kind of having a tangible impact and and is is something that should be uh emulated because right now like i think the general perception of microsoft and how they're doing is a lot better than it was two years ago i don't know yeah, if the yeah. i don't know if the actual like underlying numbers of everything suggests they've really taken all that substantial a leap but um yeah it's i find it fascinating that sony is is even starting to make the slightest moves in this direction yeah so i think actually it, i think the interesting thing is going back to what you said about things changing quickly in the games industry and I, I do think that that's kind of what's happening here because you're absolutely right like, there is no real reason to think that microsoft is going there's nothing that exists today that says that Microsoft is going to be the leader of the whole, you know, games market in, in five years' time. What there does what there is is the perception momentum. And I do think there's a kind of a sense within the industry, and this has been backed up by many conversations with, with developers I've had. Obviously that's all anecdotal, but you know, how else do you even think about the future apart from just based on, you know, the, the feel and the look of what's around you, that, 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 that a change is coming. Um, and Microsoft does appear to be quite well placed to take advantage of some of those changes. And Sony's success of this generation has been built um, on grounds that may shift quite significantly in the next sort of five years. Um, and yeah, and like you said, Hayden, this situation did not exist six or seven years ago. And while that's a whole console generation, um, that is a fairly rapid change, particularly when you're kind of on top of the market. Um, so I think that, that yeah, that there's nothing to there's nothing about what Microsoft is on at the moment which suggests that people should be following on, but they do seem to be maneuvering themselves in a way that kind of broadly um, seems in line with trends that are taking place, not just in games, but across entertainment and culture as a whole and seem to be positioning themselves quite well. Um, but I, th I think beyond even that, 
what I was saying about what exactly does Sony mean about leaning on what wider audiences. I don't think that means it's going to be releasing God of War on PC necessarily. What I, it, it could be just as much a reference to games like we just published a piece about Battlefront 2 today and the way that that game's kind of been saved and, and improved upon over time. And the, the guy from DICE compared themselves to Rainbow Six Siege, which also had a weird launch and ultimately kind of revived itself and now has whatever, like 50 million different players. Now, those players are across all different platforms, and it's one of those games where you don't need a Rainbow Six Siege 2. You just need seasons of content and updates and this kind of thing. And maybe that's the kind of game that Sony would not want to keep to itself anymore, you know, because just having that game just on your platform may do some stuff for your platform, but actually maybe what, what it would prefer to be is to, to leverage audiences right across the sweep of platforms for a title like that while still having a Spider-Man, still having an Uncharted or whatever, that it can keep to itself. I mean, neither company seems to be in a position where it wants to say, we're going to put every single one of our exclusives as widely as we possibly can. They're kind of leaving it a very, very open question. But you don't have to look too far to see the kind of games that really, really benefited for not being locked to a single platform anymore. Because it kind of takes you out of the sequel grind. It takes you out of those huge investments in entirely new products all the time. It means you can think about how you grow a game across years and years and years and slowly build up a community. And this is extremely profitable for a lot of companies now. Maybe maybe Sony just wants something a bit closer to that. Matt, you're not thinking big enough. We got to have God of War 2020 <laughs> on the Epic Games yeah. Store exclusive for a God year. God of War Battle Royale exclusive to the Epic Games Store. <laughs> Let's do that. One last thing I just want to mention here. Like, I think it's interesting that the PS4 and the Switch are like the most successful systems of the last stretch, and they're both kind of uh, throwbacks going against sort of the trend of where everyone thought the industry was heading. The PS4 was like, yeah, used games, just, you know, play them like normal. We're not going to do any kind of authentication or always-on check-ins or anything. And the Switch is like, yeah, portable gaming is good, and we want to you know support that in some way and i don't know like i i it, i do think it feels different now where at the beginning of the last generation we heard about these innovations coming and i didn't think that most people wanted them and i think the now the sort of the the perception is whatever trade-offs you might have for things like streaming and that. I think I think people are a little more willing to accept them. Yeah. Well, I think um, we're going to back to something, a point that Rebecca made, like what what is xCloud going to be? I mean, I, most of the people I talk to just assume that xCloud is just going to be a tier of Xbox Game Pass, ultimately, once it's up and running. Like they're not going to be necessarily be two distinct products. And in that sense, we might already have seen um, one of the bigger innovations that Microsoft has got in store for the way it wants to do business, which is just every first-party game we make from now on is going to be on a subscription catalog that you just pay one amount of money to gain access to. And it's not just going to be on Xbox, it's also going to be on PC. That's already happened. I mean, streaming could be introduced to that mix, but I don't think it has to be any time in the next few years for that to be a disruptive force. I, I think Ubisoft is doing the same thing with its subscription service now. EA's, you know, got one in the works. I mean, these none of these things have to use cloud or streaming. So 
you know, that those technological hurdles will have to be cleared at some point, but none of these companies are relying on them to make this particular disruption work. Um, the one company that hasn't really showed its hand in this regard is Sony. Um, and I'd, I'd be very interested to see what it has in store for subscription catalogs, which I think are going to be one of the bigger forces to, to change the market over the next few years. For a bit here, um, but let's let, let's wrap up with a discussion of Gamescom. Uh, James was there, but he's not here. Uh, so what we should talk about is Opening Night Live, which I think most of us maybe watched or at least were aware of, possibly. Or maybe uh, saw the news. Hmm? <laughs> okay, well, I watched it. Whatever. I'll talk about it. Um, it was the first year for Gamescom Opening Night Live. Uh, the show's run by Jeff Keighley. Um, I did an interview with him ahead of the show where he had some really interesting things to say about how... You know, a bunch of people are leaving E3 uh, or, you know, moving off site or whatever. E3 is kind of like bleeding major publishers. Um, and Gamescom is sort of the next big place where every major industry name is already present. And Gamescom kind of came to him and they said they wanted to do more. Like, they, Gamescom is already a huge show, but it doesn't have the kind of online presence that E3 does with all of its days of conferences ahead of time. And so they kind of wanted to amend that and do a big show. And Keeley thought the idea worked because, again, like everybody was already there. Um, so I, I guess I just want to talk about how that ended up playing out during opening night live. And my, my biggest thought was, you know, talking, talking to Jeff about it, he kind of, kind of hinted that Nintendo would be there. And so I was sort of, even though they hadn't officially announced a presence there, so I was kind of waiting to see what that would play out as. And what that did play out as was, uh, somebody accepted an award for Nintendo. Um, so they didn't actually, he, there was a whole big deal about bringing everyone together, but one of the biggest major industry figures that was already at Gamescom anyway, Nintendo, decided to skip Gamescom opening night live. So I think that sort of, um, you know, put, put, put a thorn in the, in the foot right before it started running. But um, other, otherwise, I think it was generally a pretty good representation of all the big industry names showing up and talking about their stuff. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it did... I think it went better than I expected it to, which is to say, and I think this is, a yes. thing, I, I, you know, I, I think this, the same is true with the E3 press conferences. I don't think you need to n watch an E3 press conference to know if it went well or not, because if it went well, there should be plenty of people online talking about what happened. Um, I can't, because I was there um, and sort of covering the show more or less with with James, um, who is off today because he's utterly exhausted and, and more power to him. Uh, you, you kind of find out this stuff anyway just because you're, you're in the vicinity. But I, I would be interested to know if, say, Hayden or Brendan, if you didn't watch Opening Night Live, whether that knowledge or the announcement sort of disseminated out to you in the way that they do from E3. Because I think definitely Gamescom wants to have the sort of footprint that E3 does in terms of you don't need to be at E3 to be at E3, if you know what I mean. Like you can you can experience E3 online. It is a it is a, a you know a, a blast radius of game announcements. So it really doesn't have anything to do with what's on, on the show before. <laughs> right so yeah, like I, I I view and watch events like that very differently from when I was like a university student where I would sort of gather around excitedly with my friends and we'd make an event of it and we'd sit and watch the whole thing. Like these days, it's, you know, I'm kind of looking for what is the angle of it, basically. What is, I'm not, I find it hard to kind of watch a show like that and get excited for games just because I'm kind of too cynical and my tastes have just become increasingly niche as I've gotten older and 
So something like a big bombastic showy event. Like I saw a lot of people talking about it uh, on social media. You know, it clearly gained a lot of traction, but I I didn't see people speaking about it with particularly kind words. And I mean, that's not uncommon in the games industry around events like this. Like if, if the games industry is known for one thing, it's it's snark around a sort of big glitzy events like it's it's what it's what industry people live for once a year we gather around e3 and then we all just take the piss remorselessly like you know it, it's kind it's it's kind of like like a wholesome family christmas but just <laughs> where we get really really pissy about game trailers um so i just saw a lot of that and i just thought this i'm not surprised by this i'm not excited i just it was almost exactly what i expected there didn't seem to be any big announcements if they were they got lost in just kind of the the avalanche of derision so mm. how did you miss the like 30 minute long twitter discussion about norman Reedus's what, what did you say haunted hiking holiday whatever it is where we got three different trailers for the game one of which involved Norman Reedus literally taking a piss. <laughs> like, how did but, you but exactly. all of that? Exactly. I, I saw that and I was like, oh, it's just kind of more like nonsense. Like, nothing of value. <laughs> no, like, nothing of value or importance is happening at that show tonight is basically what I took away. It's like, okay, there's a bunch of trailers for Death Stranding, which is a game that... I just cannot bring myself to care about. Like I've looked at it, I've seen Normus, Norman Reedus hiking around with his big backpack, and I've just gone. I just don't care. I'm sorry. I just, I just uh, don't let, care. Let, it's, it's not for let's, me. And let's, it's fine. Let, let's we go down the uh, <laughs> the haunted hi- ho- hiking holiday rabbit hole once again. <laughs> that that, that's a whole, that was a whole time. Be, I'll talk to him later. It would be uncharitable, I think, to say to judge uh, overnight life too much on its first year. So yeah, absolutely. In in order for Opening Night Live to become a venue for announcements, I think this this fundamentally is what really we should be addressing here is what what potential does this have to become a kind of a, at least a partner to E3 in the cycle of announcements that the industry engages in, right? So that this is exactly what we expect from E3. It's exactly what Gamescom wants to position itself as, is as a stage on which this kind of stuff could happen. Um, it takes time for, for big companies to readjust around there being two shows, this sort of stuff. So on a first year, I actually think did a pretty good job. I think most of the games that kind of emerged out of it were sort of more mid-level towards the indie, but it definitely had some interesting stuff. Um, you know, the Haunted Hiking Holiday was probably like the biggest of the games that showed me footage, but we weren't getting a new, you know, insert AAA franchise here announced on that stage, but it was never going to happen the first year anyway. Um, I think I think that there are pretty, for me, talking to people in Cologne about this, I don't think I met a single person who didn't feel that, you know, if, if Gamescom needs to change one thing to be a better stage for announcements is to change its dates to October or early November or just get a little bit more distance from E3 because the other thing that developers all tell you, it takes time. It takes a lot of time and resources to get a demo ready for E3 and no one's doing two, you know what I mean? Like it's, there is a there is an issue inherent in being only sort of seven weeks between these two things. Um, that that And it relies on publishers really, really changing the way they think about their entire year to accommodate it. And I, I do think that's going to be a difficult one for it to tackle. Also, if, if, the pre- if part of the premise is that people are leaving E3, um, I don't really know if, if 
if Gamescom responds to that effectively with kind of why they're leaving E3 and what there is to be gained by just moving the previous uh, sort of approach over to Gamescom. I think a lot of the reason people are leaving E3 is, I don't know if it's necessarily anything inherently wrong with E3. I think it's just like the changing nature of the industry and how information is distributed. That like you don't need to go and do a big glitzy show anymore. As long as you do like a good announcement, well-timed, you build up a bit of hype, like the internet or controversy will do most of the work for you. So I don't know if this is like a response. I think I feel this is a response to a question that I feel. Sorry, I feel this is a response to a different question, basically. Well, I also think that I I think Keeley's approach to shows like this is just just from a viewer standpoint really good. So looking looking at E three right, we have like roughly in the vicinity of like six to seven different press conferences or online events, whatever they are. And everyone is like dedicated to an individual publisher. And to be honest, as the years have gone by, very few of them, I think do a really like, like bang up job all the way through of keeping my attention because like, I, I don't like stan a single, maybe Nintendo a little bit, but I don't like stan a single publisher. I don't go in thinking, wow, I am so excited for every single thing EA is going to announce today, everything from sports franchises to The Sims. Like, like that's a really wide net. Um, so giving a publisher like two hours to stand up there in front of everybody and have to talk about its entire catalog and make sure that everybody who has shown up um, is interested in something that is being shown. Like that's that's a tall order. And I think I think that's something that, that some publishers are starting to struggle with, um, especially like like depending on the time of year, right? Like like for Sony, that's easy on a big year for them, but like last year they missed it entirely because it's the end of a console cycle and they you know, they just don't have anything to show. But Keeley's proposition was two hours total, everybody gets five to ten minutes, except for Kojima gets like. <laughs> like 20 but but everybody gets five to ten minutes and that's like that's a normal amount of time like you can get up there you can you can show your biggest things and then everything else you can kind of drop online or put in a press release and like i i show up to the show and yeah sure maybe i'm not interested in i don't know like space shooter four or whatever but but like oh you brought kerbal space program cool i that that looks good and it's it's paced really nicely it feels like there's not a lot of nonsense or bullshit in between things they're they're not like dragging car okay the lego car was cool <laughs> but they're not like dragging out cars on stage they're not they're not trying to fill time they just have a bunch of stuff to show and it's paced nicely and it they, they bring the developers up on stage also which i think is another really big deal that we don't always see and it just it as far as i, I think it works I, th- I think it works really really well i wish more shows were like this I mean, you make a fairly compelling case. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I, I think that then, is it that, I mean, and I personally would love this if we didn't have to sit through 10 hours of press conferences every E3, that would be great. <laughs> like if there were, there were press conferences like when there was new hardware to either announce or unveil and from, from the kind of the platform holders. But, you know, maybe Bethesda didn't feel the need to stand and make you watch for 90 minutes every year. Maybe, maybe that would be a good way of doing it. Maybe we need Jeff Keighley to step in on E3. And, and I believe, actually, no, he said that to you, didn't he, Rebecca? That he's he is, yeah, with he's E3, working with E3 right now. And, and you know what? Like, I, I kind of like that idea to have like one like Uber conference where it's sort of like a variety show where all the major publishers get sort of 20 minutes to impress you. Like a gong show type of thing, you know. Maybe they don't get to their last trailer because it's all a bit boring and too violent or whatever this shit. Something like that. I quite like the idea. I just think that 
publishers tend to, to have narrowed their release schedules so much that actually coming up with a full conference's worth of interesting content is less and less viable for them. So Keeley's approach might be one way worth exploring of, of doing it in the future. Well, if, if he does end up taking over every show, we know we'll be seeing an awful lot more from Death Stranding at all of them. <laughs> yeah. On, on that note, we've been here a little while. Uh, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms, and you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight in the wor- into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. Mm-hmm.